But this morning, we're going to talk about three things. We're going to talk about prayer, sin, and righteousness. Now, what I want to do before we dig into the text itself, I just want to sort of reset the compass, remind everybody about what the overall occasion was for John writing this letter. John is writing largely to combat what was known as the Gnostic heresy. As a definition, David Guzik writes, the Gnostic heresy is difficult to describe precisely. It was a corruption of Christianity blended with elements of mystical and legalistic Judaism and pagan occultism. The Gnostics placed a tremendous emphasis on the idea of spiritual enlightenment, that the way to encounter God was through accruing knowledge. And why that's important to remember is because at the end of today's Bible study, John is going to present us with four we know statements. And I can't help but see the humor in it. Because the, the word for Gnostic, the Greek word for to know, is um, gnosis, which means to know by experience. And it's as if John is writing, hey, you Gnostics, you think you know, right? L let me tell you how we really know. We know by experiencing a relationship with the Lord. And so that's going to become, again, sort of one of the emphasis as we get towards the end of our study this morning. But uh, I want to talk about prayer at the beginning. Our opening verses this morning uh, is prayer. On that note, why don't we pray again real quick? <clears throat> Father, we love you. And as we pause now to look at your word, again, we pray you speak to our hearts. Lord, just help us in the midst of busy lives, uh, kids, jobs, holidays, whatever it might be, to just sort of pause now and relax into your word and hear the still small voice of your spirit speaking to us today. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Prayer is one of those things in the Christian community that, in my opinion, uh, cannot be overstated, right? We all know that we need to be praying. Prayer is our lifeline to God. Anytime I, as a pastor, uh, intentionally pause and reflect upon what I, as a pastor, need to be focusing on or what we, as a church, need to be focusing on, without a doubt, it's prayer. When Paul wrote to Timothy, his young pastor protege, I was struck by this the other day. I was reading as I was preparing for this morning, and I began to do some cross-referencing. And I noticed how in Paul's letter to Timothy, here's what he said. He said, <clears throat> I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. So the very first thing Paul tells Timothy, I want you to focus on is prayer. Then, just a few verses later, he says, I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere. This is so interesting to me. When you think about the things that we can focus on in church, one-on-one -on -one discipleship, small groups, community outreach, when you look in the Bible and you see what was Paul telling Timothy, I want you to make your first priority, it's prayer. And after that, Timothy, the first thing I want you to do, I want you to get your men praying. If somebody were to ask me, Kevin, what's your vision for men's ministry? To get the guys praying. That prayer is the bedrock of the entire ministry of the church. We all need to be praying. Did you know, and this is so interesting to me, that in the Gospels, the only thing that the disciples specifically came and asked Jesus to teach them was this, Lord, teach us to pray. And I, and I want you to think about this for a moment, right? You have an up-close and personal, one-on-one -on -one 
living, breathing, incarnate God of the universe, you can ask him whatever you want. Lord, how do I walk on water, right? How do I raise people back to life from the dead? Lord, how do I cast out demons? Might help me raising my children, right? Lord, how do I turn water into wine? The only thing they specifically said, Lord, teach us, was prayer. Lord, teach us that. Now, I would say, first of all, this is probably because they observed something in Jesus' life. Luke chapter 11 says, It came to pass as he, meaning Jesus, was in a certain place praying, that when he ceased, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, if Jesus, God in the flesh, who we could probably argue was the one person with a capital P throughout Hall of History who didn't need to pray, if Jesus Christ himself spent time in prayer, how much more should we? The other thing that's so interesting to me is that when you look in the original language, it's not teach us how to pray, the literal translation is teach us to be praying. And again, the reality is in the modern day church, we have books on prayer, conferences on prayer, workshops on prayer. We do Bible series on prayer. We all know how to pray and that we need to be doing it. The thing that we need to be taught is, Lord, make us people who do do it. Make us people who pray. It's a synapse that seems to not fire in the modern day church. I was struck by some of these quotes that I read recently from several authors. It's a sad reality of the church in the Western world that the prayer meeting is the least attended church gathering. I've experienced this reality firsthand as a member of a church of a thousand plus where eight to ten people show up for the weekly prayer meeting. Most pastors will tell you that the most important meeting of the church is the prayer meeting, but they will also say it's the least attended meeting in their church. I am told that most people will come easy to a potluck, but not to a prayer meeting. The corporate midweek church prayer meeting is all but absent in the churches of our day. It's really on my heart, and I've been talking to quite a few folks about this, that as we come into 2023, the thing that I believe God wants us to focus on more than anything is prayer. We're going to be starting up a once-a-month Sunday evening prayer meeting. We're going to be really exhorting the body to not just go out into the neighboring communities and prayer walk, but to come to the property and pray, men's prayer meetings, women's prayer meetings, really setting aside the month of January to have daily prayer. So I just want to encourage you guys as we come into 2023 to really grab a hold of prayer with us, because I believe that's really what the Lord is telling us to focus on. Now, John, this morning, as we get into the text, he's got two verses specifically that relate to prayer. I'll just read them, then we'll unpack some things together. Look in verse 14 with me. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And, verse 15, if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Okay, so several ideas connected to prayer in these verses. They, they kind of build on top of each other. First of all, we're told straight up here, we're to ask. We're to ask. Secondly, we're told that we can ask anything. Third, we're told to ask according to God's will. Fourth, John assures us that God hears us. And then finally, John says that if God hears us, 
that we should know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Throughout scripture, we are invited and encouraged by the Lord to ask in prayer. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7 says, In everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. James 1, verse 5, check this out, says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. In teaching us to pray, in Luke chapter 11, Jesus said, In this manner, therefore, pray. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Do not lead us into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Those all present some form of asking. In fact, Jesus goes on to give this illustration, which I love. He says, which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves because a friend of mine has come to me on his journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he'll answer from within and say, do not trouble me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. Persistence in what? Well, then Jesus goes on to drop these words. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. Now he's talking about persisting, right? The literal translation is this. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. Because he says, everyone who keeps on asking receives. Everyone who keeps on seeking will find. To him who keeps on knocking, the door will be opened. He says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who what? Ask. We're to ask in prayer. And we can ask for anything. Luke 137 says, with God, nothing is impossible. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard, it hasn't even entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for him. Ephesians 3.20 says, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or can even imagine. There is nothing too big that we can ask God for. In fact, I would probably dare to say that on an average basis, and I mean this for myself, our prayers are probably very small in terms of the things we actually ask from the Lord. And I believe that John this morning is writing these words to stir us up to faith-filled asking in our prayers. Now, he reminds us that we need to ask according to God's will. What does that even mean? I think a key to understanding this is found in Jesus' own words, which is possible John may have had in mind as he wrote this. In John chapter 15, verse 7, Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will, do, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Having a relationship with the word of God shapes our understanding and informs the requests that we ask of God. 
For instance, you're not going to pray, Lord, please let me have a relationship with someone other than my spouse. Why? Because adultery is clearly contrary to the word of God. You're not going to pray, Lord, bless me as I go out and get drunk with my friends tonight. Lord, be with me and give me wisdom as I cheat on my taxes. Lord, please let this person believe the lie that I am about to tell them. Somebody might say, Kevin, those are pretty extreme examples. And I would say, after 27 years of being in full-time ministry, you might be surprised to hear some of the things I've heard people praying and asking for. Maybe this is what James has in mind when he says, you do not have because you do not ask, but then he says this, you ask and you don't receive, why? Because you ask amiss. You're asking with the wrong motivation. You see, that's the opposite of asking according to God's will. So what about those instances where we don't know the revealed will of God on a matter? How do we pray in those instances? Well, again, Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, there he prays three times, Father, if it's your will, take this cup from me, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, I don't want to get into the weeds here on whether or not Jesus knew the will of the Father. I personally believe that he did. My point is here, Jesus submits his own will to the will of the Father. It's a perfect example of what it means to ask according to God's will. David Guzik writes, when we abide in Jesus, living in him day by day, then our will becomes more and more aligned with his own. And we can ask what we desire and more and more be asking according to his will. Then we will see answered prayer. Now, John here says that if we ask anything according to God's will, he hears us. So the question becomes, are there ever instances when God does not hear us? Well, according to scripture, Psalm 66, 18 says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. John 9, 31 says, God does not hear sinners. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, in a word that's <clears throat> directed specifically to husbands, so husbands take note, it says, husbands dwell with your wives with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, so that your prayers will not be hindered. So there are instances where our prayer life can be hindered and God does not hear us if there are ongoing unresolved sin issues in our heart. But when our heart is right before the Lord, when we're praying in alignment with the word of God, the promise of scripture is this, God hears us. In fact, the full verse from John 9:31 is this, we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God hears him. And what John wants to assure us this morning is that if God hears us, then we should know that we have the petitions that we've asked of him. Now, does that mean that God will always give us whatever we ask for? No, First of all, working backwards, not everything we ask for is in alignment with God's will. Secondly, just because something isn't directly contrary to the word of God, 
does not mean that it's God's will for our life. For instance, men, husbands, we could say that it is God's will for us to work a job and provide for our families. That is clearly revealed in the word of God. Okay? Doesn't matter what society says. Doesn't matter all the creative programs that the government puts in place. The word of God says that husbands are supposed to work to provide for their families. Now, what job to work isn't revealed in God's word? So, we can ask for a job, uh, we can ask for a specific job, because working is in accordance with his will, but if we don't get that specific job, what do we assume? That that specific job isn't part of God's will for our lives. In fact, here's a great promise of scripture. Man, I love this. Psalm 8411, check this out. No good thing will the Lord withhold from those who walk uprightly. That's amazing. Now, here's what that means. If you are walking uprightly before the Lord, and if something is good for you, God will let you have it. If the Lord doesn't let you have it, but you're still walking uprightly before the Lord, then you can assume that whatever that thing was isn't good for you, at least not right now. Now, it may be, as we've already talked about, that the Lord just wants you to persist in prayer. He wants you to keep on asking, to keep on seeking, to keep on knocking. So you shouldn't just abandon the request because God hasn't answered, right? But let's say that over time and through many prayers, it just doesn't seem like the Lord is granting you the request you've asked. And whatever it is, a specific job, a home, a spouse, children, more money, a healing, whatever it might be, the promise of Scripture is this. No good thing will the Lord withhold from those who walk uprightly. So if the Lord doesn't grant that petition that you've asked of him, it probably means that thing isn't good for you right now. Now, we need to keep going. So, verse 16. Still connected to the idea of prayer here. John says, If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and God will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. Now, John says, There is sin leading to death, and I do not say that he should pray about that. Okay. This is a fairly difficult concept. Let me get ready for this. From God's perspective, sin is sin is sin. Okay, which means this. The person who tells a little white lie and the mass murderer are both guilty before the Lord. Okay, they're both equally guilty before the Lord. They're both sinners. So it's important to understand, John is not talking about degrees of sinning here this morning. In fact, I think you see that in the text itself. When John says in verse 17, all unrighteousness is sin. However, there are sins that carry greater consequences 
than others. For instance, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery. Okay, so check this out. The guilt for thinking about adultery and actually committing adultery is exactly the same. The guilt is, but the consequences are not. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul writes, Every sin that a man commits is outside his body, but he who commits sexual immorality actually sins against his own body. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? Because the two, he says, shall become one flesh. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? Certainly not. So even though thinking about committing adultery is equivalent from a guilt standpoint as actually committing adultery, there's a big difference from a consequential standpoint when one actually commits the act. Someone could become pregnant out of wedlock, kind of like with David and Bathsheba, right? Which, let's face it, could lead to an abortion, which could lead to divorce if there's children involved. Now, all those people are affected by the act. And, in fact, Scripture says that if you divorce someone for the wrong reasons and they go out and marry someone, what have you done? You've caused them now to commit adultery. So do you see how committing the act from a consequential standpoint is radically different from thinking about it, even though from a guilt standpoint, they're one and the same? We could say the same thing about murder. Again, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, if you're angry with someone without cause, you've already committed murder. So from a guilt standpoint, they're one and the same, but we can clearly understand how from a consequences standpoint, actually murdering someone is radically different from just thinking about it. So the guilt, sin is sin is sin, but there are consequences to sin that are varying. John here says in verse 16, check it out, there is sin which leads to death. And then he says in verse 17, there is sin not leading to death. Okay, so all sin, right? The the, the spiritual result, the payment necessary for all sin is the same, death. But not all sins from a consequential standpoint will actually lead to a person's physical demise. But some will. That's what scripture says. There is sin that leads to death. Think about what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church when he was addressing their disgraceful behavior at communion. Here's what he said. Whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. So let a man examine himself and then let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup Because he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And then he says this, For this reason, 
Many are weak and sick among you, and many have died. Think about that. We're Calvary Chapel, Yuba City, and we get a letter from Billy Graham, right? Somebody that's really high up in the American church. Yes, and I know Billy Graham's not alive any longer. Somebody really high up, okay? Greg Laurie, whoever, Louis Giglio, Francis Chan. And in this letter, he says, hey, based on your behavior at communion, that's why some of you have died. Wow. That's a radical statement. David Guzik writes, evidently among the Corinthian Christians, some experienced illness and some had even died as a result of God's corrective discipline. As mentioned in 1 John chapter 5, verse 16, which is where we are this morning, there is sin that leads to death. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 is a perfect example of this. Apparently, a believer can sin to the point where God believes it's best to bring them home, probably because they have in some way compromised their testimony so significantly that they should just come home to God. Apparently, when a Christian is being corrected in regard to a sin leading to death, there is no point in praying for his recovery or restoration. The situation is in God's hands. Now, he also adds, importantly, some believe that the use of the word brother in 1 John chapter 5, verse 16 is used in a very loose sense. And what John means by the sin leading to death is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit the so-called unforgivable sin, which is the willful, settled rejection of Jesus Christ. But he says this, this would be a curious use of the term brother, especially according to how John has already used this word in this letter. Meaning, John is not talking in this verse about someone who never believed in Jesus. He's clearly talking mm, about Christian brothers who become involved in some kind of sinful behavior that carries consequences that are so bad that he recommends not even praying for them. Again, difficult concept. I didn't write it, but it is right here in the passage this morning. Now, towards the end of the letter, this is where John gives us these four we know statements. And remember, the Greek word he uses for know is gnosko, which means to know by experience. So verse 18, he writes, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. Verse 19, we know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And verse 20, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. Verse 18, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin. Now, let me just remind us all of something that John has already established as we've studied through 1 John. In the original language, John is making it clear that what he's talking about is someone not continuing in sin, okay? David Guzik writes, it's very important to understand what the Bible means and what it doesn't mean when it says whoever is born of God doesn't sin, like Brenton likes to say. We're not talking about sinless perfection. We're talking about a sinning less direction. 
He says, according to the verb tense John uses, the phrase does not sin means does not live a lifestyle of habitual sin. John has already told us in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, that if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. There the grammar indicates occasional acts of sin. But the grammar of 1 John 5.18 indicates that John is speaking of a settled, continued lifestyle of sin. The NIV, which I don't often quote from, it really does get the idea right with these, verb, with, with these verbs, with phrases like, keeps on sinning, continues to sin, cannot go on sinning. So we could read verse 18 this way. We know that whoever is born of God does not go on sinning. But he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. There's some debate, but it's most likely in the Greek that the he of verse 18 is a he with a capital H, and that most likely what John is saying in this verse is, whoever is born of God does not go on sinning, but he who has been born of God, meaning Jesus, keeps him, meaning the believer. This would echo what we read in Jude 24. Him who is able to keep you from stumbling. 1 Peter chapter 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has begotten us again to a living hope, who are kept by the power of God. Which is wonderful. God is able to keep us and preserve us and protect us from what? Or from who? Verse 18, the wicked one which John says, will not touch us. Now, I like this, okay? <clears throat> because what, and this is important, okay? Because this is something that a lot of people in the modern church get mixed up on. The word touch in the Greek there, it literally means attach oneself to. A.T. Robertson said, the word touch means to lay hold of or grasp rather than a mere superficial touch. The only other place in Scripture that John uses this particular verb is in John chapter 20, verse 17, when Jesus tells Mary to stop clinging to him. Okay, so check this out. Because we're born of God, neither Satan nor any of his demons can attach themselves to us. They cannot cling to us in the same sense that they can of a person who is not born of God. And this is what I like to say, it really blows the whole idea of deliverance ministry out of the water. Okay, because there are people who will falsely teach, and yes, I say it because I get angry about this. You cannot be a child of God. There are people who will say, yes, you're born again, but you still have a demon of anger. You still have a demon of lust. You still have a demon of addiction. And the only way you can deal with that is to go to this specific prayer meeting and be prayed over to be delivered. Guys, can I just remind you of the good news of Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, that he has delivered us. That is past tense. I always say it this way. In fact, I was talking to somebody in our, in our parking lot one day because they were kind of arguing with me about this. And it was right after Amia Lee had been born. And I said to this man, I said, hey, I just had a baby. My wife delivered our baby a week ago. 
I said, uh, how many times do you think my wife has to go back and deliver my child again? He goes, what are you talking about? I said, my child was born. She was delivered. He goes, yeah. I said, do you think my wife has to go back for my child to be delivered again? He was like, no. I was like, right. You have been born again. You have been delivered. You don't have to keep being delivered. What a nightmare that would be, right, moms, if you had to go back, you know, and just keep delivering your child over and over again? Guys, this is good news. You're a child of God. And John says, we know this. We know that the wicked one cannot attach himself to us. Can, can, you, can we all just please, like, sink our roots deep down into this truth? It will relieve us of so much stress and worry. Yeah, Satan can pester us, but he can't attach himself to us. Now, the other thing that John says we know, verse 19, is we know that we're of God even though the whole world lies under this wicked, the sway of the wicked one. So the wicked one can't touch us, and we're not under the controlling influence of the wicked one even though the world system is. Again, that's good news. And, verse 20, John says, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding so that we may know him who is true, that we're in him who is true, his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. By the way, it's a powerful verse on the deity of Jesus right there. John wants us absolutely certain of these things. He wants us to know these things. This is what I love. Christianity is not about guesswork. It's not about assuming our state before God. And the reason that's important is because it seems to be for a lot of people populating modern-day churches. John doesn't say, we think that whatever is born of God doesn't sin, or we hope that we're of God, or it might be that the Son of God has come and given us an understanding, and it, it's possible we could know him who is true. John says we should know these things. Like these should be like tent pegs that are just nailed down into the soil of our human experience that we know, that we know, that we know. The Christian life that God wants us living is one of certainty where we experience a living, breathing, walking, interacting, day-by-day relationship with him, where we are assured of his presence in our life, and we are 100% guaranteed of our identity in him. And I think that the reason so many Christians can struggle with these things is because they don't know. They rely upon someone else to tell them. John here doesn't say, Pastor Kevin knows these things, but you have to wonder about it. No, no, no. We should all know 100% that these things are true in our relationship with God. Every single Christian, every single child of God should be certain of our state and our relationship with Jesus. It's exactly what John says at the beginning of his letter. He says, that which we have heard, which we have seen, which we have looked upon, which our hands have handled, 
John says, I want you to know by experience. It's like the psalmist said, taste and see for yourself that the Lord is good, right? It'd be one thing if I stood up here with an ice cream and I said, oh, this ice cream's really, really good, you know? The only way you would really know would be for you to taste the ice cream. Taste and see for yourself that the Lord is good. We're going to pause there, and uh, we're going to finish up next Sunday morning, and as the worship team comes up, we're going to close with a couple of songs today, and I really want to provide some time for the Holy Spirit to just kind of massage these things into our hearts. And I just want to say, you know, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, don't leave here today without finding Mallet or one of our prayer partners, find me. We would love to pray with you. We would love for you to just leave here today knowing that you know that you know. Tink, 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 tink. Just nailing that tent peg down in your heart. That's what God wants for every single one of us.